Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. Last time I talked about what I called obvious and unobvious miracles. And to clarify, I would also include under the unobvious heading acts of God that are not properly considered to be miracles, where he's working entirely by what are called secondary causes. Um, so, for example, a doctor prescribes a medicine. And in that case, it's somewhat mysterious what we mean when we say God did it or God used it. He might just have, you know, created the soul of the doctor, so to speak, who's then <clears throat> intelligent, grows up and uh, prescribes that medication and so forth. So obvious miracles, though, are things that not only are miracles, but they are obviously miracles. That is to say, you can tell that something supernatural has happened and has occurred, that something has intervened, that it's not just the ongoing activity of natural causes. What I want to do today is take this in a slightly different direction and to talk about what I would consider to be a dogmatic preference for God to act in unobvious ways. Now, you might think of this automatically as a kind of dogmatic cessationism. In theology, cessationists hold that uh, spiritual gifts such as gifts of healing ended with the close of the canon of scripture. Now, most cessationists that, in fact, all of them that I've ever known, have not actually insisted that after that God never performs miracles, even miracles of healing, but that he doesn't uh, give people a specific gift of a miracle of healing. So I've never actually met a cessationist who was as dogmatic as what I'm envisaging here. Something that's not merely hypothetical, though, and that is this kind of dogmatic limiting of God's detectable action is a certain type of objection to intelligent design views, especially in biology. And that's what I want to be addressing here. Now, I want to say right away, no one else who advocates biological design arguments should be blamed for what I'm saying right here. Um, very often, advocates of biological design arguments have emphasized that they are not advocating divine intervention. I think that's a mistake. I think they should just say, yeah, maybe it was divine intervention. You know, could have been. And if it looked like it came from some agent, you know, more than natural, uh, then yeah, very plausibly it could have been divine intervention. And there's no empirical reason to push off the activity of that divine agent to the Big Bang, some kind of ultimate, you know, pool bank shot way back at the Big Bang so that, God forbid, God didn't have to intervene at any time past that. Um, that's certainly not scientifically required. If a uh, um, if a car appears in my driveway at 10 o'clock uh, in the evening, I am justified in assuming that someone brought the car there at 10 o'clock in the evening, not that someone set up a robot car that drove itself there to show up at 10 o'clock in the evening. So prima facie, if some biological entity shows up at a certain point in time and looks like it was intelligently designed then, looks like that's when the intelligent designer was acting, and it's only a, a metaphysical preference that would cause us to try to avoid uh, the concept or the activity of intervention there. So I don't, I just say, yes, intervention. I mean, in a sense, when I pick up this glass of water, I'm 
intervening. That is to say, the glass of water isn't just coming to me by the process of physical natural law. And all the more so if we're talking about God's actions. But don't blame anybody else for that. That's what I'm saying. Okay, now I've included in the show notes today a link to an article from some time ago in the journal First Things. First Things had a number of anti-ID articles during that time period, and also a couple of articles, I believe, by uh, Michael Behe as well, but the the larger number were anti-ID. This is by a professor named Meredith, and it's pretty typical of this type of objection. Meredith even claims that if you accept uh, biological design, you're an occasionalist, like you don't believe in real secondary causes at all. And I'm sorry, bad tone alert, but that's nonsense. There's a tremendous amount of space between denying the reality of secondary causes and adapting Professor Meredith's specific limits as to when God is allowed to work in the world. Um, And his specific limits, which are very common, very common in uh, especially Christian opponents of intelligent design, are that God works in the world only in a religious context, only, uh, and sometimes the phrase will be used, um, salvation history. Only in salvation history does God work. He doesn't work outside of that. You know, he doesn't intervene, doesn't perform miracles outside of salvation history. Um, So it's, it's very, very specific. Okay, and... The problem with this, well, there are many problems with it, but one of them is that it actually creates an epistemological roadblock to recognizing salvation history. It's kind of a regress problem. So let me give you an example. Imagine Moses, he's out in the desert. God hasn't done any great work among his people at that time for hundreds of years. And Moses doesn't know that he's going to be used as Uh, a deliverer of his people from slavery in Egypt. And he sees a bush burning that isn't being consumed, or so it appears to him, and he hears a voice coming out of the bush. Now, let's suppose that Moses had adopted this idea that God only works in salvation history, and that unless we already know that something is, you know, a, a, a religious context, um, it is salvation history, we should reject it. We should just not even not even accept that evidence. We should say there must be some secondary causal explanation. Then he would be obligated to say, well, I must just be hallucinating or something like that. There must be some natural explanation for this burning bush and this voice. Um, so that the religious context could never be established in the first place then, okay? Um, or Mary would have to explain away the angel as someone, you know, hoaxing her or something because she doesn't know that she's in salvation history. And if she's committed to this idea, God only acts in salvation history, then she should explain this in some natural way because she has no other reason to believe she's in salvation history. In other words, one of the ways that we recognize salvation history, one of the ways that a religious context is established is by a miracle happening that's a surprise to people. 
in a case where they did not already know. I mean, it has to start somewhere. The religious context has to start somewhere and in some fashion. So if you take this view, you're, you're not going to be able to recognize that. It's never going to be able to get off the ground. Now, it might be replied, an objection that might be replied here would be, well, but at least those were people actually watching the miracle happen. You know, Mary actually can tell that she's becoming pregnant. She can recognize her own pregnancy. Uh, Moses can actually see the burning bush. Whereas if God had created biological entities prior to um, any human being's existence, then there wouldn't be anybody watching it happen. And so it couldn't have this function, this revelatory function. It couldn't be part of creating uh, a religious context or giving us reason to believe in a religious proposition. But that's not really true because I, ID theorists themselves are saying that we do have evidence. We have evidence now. And God could certainly foresee our developing, you know, humans developing microscopes and so forth and being able to see and recognize these things. So, um, I don't think it's justified to say that someone literally has to be standing there at the point in space-time and watching that miracle occur in order for it to be of evidential value. And those who take the perspective that uh, Dr. Meredith takes are simply denying its evidential value by saying it just couldn't happen that way. Um, and so it's, it's like a, a theological presupposition that, that God cannot be working detectably in an obvious way. And, and therefore, we're just going to ignore all the claims that God is working in an obvious way here, like, or did work in an obvious way here. Um, because, you know, we're committed to the idea that he couldn't because working in biology is not working in this particular point or type or window of space-time where we've declared it, God works and God works only in those windows. Um, so that's it. You're blocking the course of inquiry at that point. Um, you know, the, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And in no way is that limited we don't find any indication anywhere in scripture that that's limited to um, unobvious workings, that creation itself can only show God's handiwork if that handiwork is apparently through natural law or secondary processes. There's it's just, there's no scriptural warrant for that. And the philosophical warrant for that is just lacking. To, to say philosophically, well, it's because otherwise you'd be an occasionalist, it's just blatantly false. Um, you don't have to deny the existence of natural causes to have a larger uh, number of places where you recognize God's detectable action. Um, there's also an argument there that we would be unable to answer the problem of evil. I'm not going to take the time here to go into discussing that argument, but I will just say briefly that um, I, I don't think that a person who takes this kind of dogmatic, you know, God only heals during uh, salvation history is in any better place to answer the problem of evil than a person who 
believes that, that Jesus healed people when he was here on this earth. You know, if you're talking to an unbeliever and he's upset that um, God didn't prevent the Holocaust or that God didn't prevent this child from dying, saying to him, ah, well, you know, my view is that God only heals during uh, times of salvation history or God only does miracles during times of salvation history. And, you know, those people were just unlucky enough to fall outside of that. You know, you're going to be scoffed at just as much as uh, if you argue or answer the problem of evil by saying, well, you know, God just doesn't heal everybody. He doesn't. Um, and he's not obligated to heal everybody or to, um, you know, prevent all evil because there is a value to the operation of natural causes and so forth, which is entirely open as an answer to someone who believes that God has acted in biological history. So creating these these walls is not really of any philosophical advantage, and it has a big philosophical disadvantage of ignoring evidence. So that's something a little different for today than what we usually do on this channel. I am planning to take a break next week, so it'll be two weeks before there's a new video out and a new audio podcast out. Tons of content on here already. Please like and subscribe and explore what we've got here. And thanks for watching or listening to the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous.